Well, I had, uh, I had the privilege when I was in seminary for a couple summers to work at a summer camp out in California, out in the Sierra Nevada mountains near Yosemite National Park. I remember uh, uh, the, the kids that we ministered to at the camp, we called them the up-and-outers. Uh, you know, you had the down-and-outers in society. Well, these kids were the up-and-outers. They were kids that came from really wealthy families down in Los Angeles and San Diego, and, and yet they had, many of them, really tough backgrounds and broken families and, and, uh, and needed a lot of love. And I remember one week there was a, a young, young man at this camp, and uh, his name was Jarek. And the first time I met Jarek, I remember Jarek had, uh, it was a Sunday afternoon, the campers were all arriving, and Jarek was off on a bench, uh, sitting off by himself. And uh, all the other kids at the camp were excited to be there, you know, and they were exploring and playing, and, and Jarek was just sitting off on this bench all by himself. And I remember I went up and I, and I talked to Jarek, and, and I asked him, I said, hey, how you doing? And he didn't say anything, and, and I asked him, I said, uh, tell me, what, what's your name? Again, he didn't, he didn't say anything, and, and I just uh, kind of s- slid next to him a little bit more, and, and I, said, uh, I said, tell me, what, what, what's your name? And he looks at me, and he just says, I don't have a name. I said, what do you mean you don't have a name? Everybody has a name. He says, no, I'm nobody. And as I started talking to Jarek, I found out that this kid was really, really hurting, really, really broken, a broken spirit, and had been through a lot of tough stuff in his 12 years of life. And uh, I asked Jarek, I said, you know, Jarek, when, when you think about God and, and who God is, I said, what, what comes to your mind when you think about God? And he says, you know, I don't think God cares about me at all. I said, why would you say that? He's like, ah, I just don't think he cares. And over the course of that week of befriending Jarek and ministering to Jarek, I discovered that, you know, Jarek's father had left him and his mom a few years earlier. He had been abandoned. He felt totally alone. He had been picked on and bullied. And, and uh, because of that, he was projecting all of this negative image upon God. And I think that's a pretty common temptation for a lot of us, Right? You know, we take the things in our lives and the experiences in our lives and we often project those experiences back onto God for good or for bad. And a lot of our experiences in life will impact our view of God. And what we're going to be doing here in the coming weeks as we go through the book of Isaiah is we are hoping and praying that as we look in this powerful book that God will open up our eyes and our spirits to a fresh vision of who he is, a proper vision of who God is, in his greatness, in his faithfulness, in his love. There is nothing, friends, more important in our lives than how we view God, because your picture of God will affect everything about your life. Dr. A.W. Tozer, in his classic work, The Knowledge of the Holy, In the introduction to his book, he says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Friends, what you think and believe about God this morning 
will have profound implications for all areas of your life. Your image of God is so important. And so this is why in the next, couple we- next few weeks over the course of the summer, we are going to be looking at the nature and character of God as revealed in the book of Isaiah because we want to have a proper vision of God. We recognize how important it is for God's people to know him correctly. And so we're going to be looking at some incredible topics over the course of the summer in the book of Isaiah. This morning we're going to begin by talking about the God who forgives rebels. We're going to be looking at other topics this, this, this summer to help us get a proper vision of who our God is. Topics like the God who is our rock. The God who knows the future. The God who will not forget us. And so many more glimpses into the nature and character of God so that we might have a proper vision of who God is. And we might be transformed as a result of having that proper vision of our great God. The book of Isaiah is an incredible book that we're going to be looking at here this summer to help us get this glimpse of who our God is. In fact, uh, the book of Isaiah, some have called it a mini Bible. The book of Isaiah, this is really incredible to think about. How many books are in the Bible? 66 books in the Bible. Did you know the book of Isaiah has 66 chapters? Not only that, but incredibly, the very first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah almost mirror perfectly thematically the themes of the Old Testament. How many books are in the Old Testament? 39 books in the Old Testament. The first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah speak of God's holiness, his sovereignty, man's rebellion against God, our sin, and the reality of judgment for our sin mirroring many of the themes in the Old Testament. But the next 27 books, the last 27 books of Isaiah represent and mirror the New Testament, the hope of the gospel, the promise of a savior, the promise of forgiveness and a Messiah. It's really incredible. The book of Isaiah is really like a mini Bible, a reflection of God's word as a whole. Some people have referred to the book of Isaiah as the gospel of the Old Testament. It's really incredible as we read through the book of Isaiah, there's going to be times this summer, I guarantee you, where you're going to actually forget you're in the Old Testament because gospel themes run so strongly through this book that many people have referred to it, as I said, as the gospel of the Old Testament. Not only that, but Isaiah is incredible because Isaiah, out of all the books of the Old Testament, has some of the most powerful prophecies pointing to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. The book of Isaiah was written in 700 B.C., 700 years before Jesus Christ. And friends, there are over 20 major prophecies in the book of Isaiah pointing to the coming of Jesus that were all fulfilled in the person of Jesus. In fact, liberal skeptics over the years have been so astounded by the prophecies in the book of Isaiah that many liberal skeptics and scholars say, there's no way that this was written 700 years before Jesus Somebody obviously added these prophecies into the book later on because there's no way that this stuff could be fulfilled the way it is. And that was a common view in many liberal theological seminaries for a long time until the past century when an incredible archaeological discovery was made, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you know that the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found partial or complete manuscripts of every book in the Old Testament except for the book of Esther. And 
the only book that we found a complete copy of in the Dead Sea Scrolls was the book of Isaiah. And that copy in the Dead Sea Scrolls dates to 200 years before Jesus Christ. And guess what? All of those prophecies of the Messiah are still in that copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls 200 years before Jesus. In other words, friends, the liberal scholars might not think those prophecies are 700 years old, but we know for a fact that they're at least 200 years before the time of Christ. Still remarkable, still incredible. This is a neat book. The prophet Isaiah himself was an incredible man. His ministry lasted over 60 years and spanned four different kings. He was sort of like the Billy Graham of the Old Testament. You know, Billy Graham was a spiritual advisor to 10 different presidents during his lifetime. Isaiah fulfilled the same role for four kings of Israel over the course of 60 years. Isaiah's name means Yahweh is salvation. And what an excellent summary, as we're going to see, of the whole book, that Yahweh is our salvation. We just finished a study of the book of Hebrews this past year, and if you recall, Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the Hall of Fame of Faith and talks about the great heroes of the faith. And in Hebrews 11, verse 37, it talks about many of the ways that these great heroes of the faith were martyred or put to death as a result of seeking to follow God faithfully. And in verse 37 of Hebrews 11, it may refer actually to the death of Isaiah when it says that some were sawn in two. Jewish tradition says that Isaiah was sawn in two by King Manasseh. And that's how his life came to an end. And it was reflected then later in the book of Hebrews, celebrating this man of faith. This is going to be an incredible series, friends. And again, all of it is for the purpose of pointing us to a proper vision of who our God is. Now, today is Father's Day. And uh, man, what a great day to celebrate our dads. Kids, if you're here this morning, make sure to give your dads a great hug this morning and tell them how much you love them. Tell them how much you appreciate them. Father's Day is a special time to celebrate our dads. And you know, when I think about Father's Day for me, I'm a father now, but I look to the example of my own dad. And I'm just so thankful that I had a, a great father a godly father who pointed me to Jesus every day. He wasn't perfect by any means, but he understood his imperfections and his need for Jesus. And he modeled that consistently in his life. I was thinking this week as I was studying our passage for this morning about how much my view of my dad has influenced my picture of God. See, fathers, we have a profound role that we play in our kids' lives. And how we live and act and treat and love our kids will help or hinder their vision of who God as their heavenly father is. It's a profound responsibility. And, and that's why we need Jesus every single day. We need God's grace every single day. And, and I was thinking about my dad. And, <clears throat> you know, I'm so thankful that I had a dad who taught me discipline. But he did it with love and with grace. I'm thankful that I had a dad who taught me the difference between right and wrong, that poor choices have consequences. But even in the consequences, in the punishment, my dad would model love and grace. He didn't let my bad choices go, but he also helped me understand that even in the punishment, he loved me and he cared about me. And as I thought about that model that I saw in my dad 
and I thought about our passage for this week. You know, today as we begin this series on the nature and character of God revealed in Isaiah, what we're going to find, friends, is that what my father modeled for me, imperfect as it was in his life, was really just a reflection of who our Heavenly Father is. A God who loves us. A God who warns us of the consequences of straying from his will for us. A God who will allow us to experience the consequences of our rebellion. And a God who punishes justly. But he's also a God who stands ready to welcome weary rebels into his loving arms. What an incredible picture of God. This morning we're going to take a look at the God who forgives rebels. And to do this, we're going to look right at the very beginning of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. It's a big section of scripture. We're going to read this together this morning, and uh, we'll come back after we read and talk a little bit about what's going on here in the picture of God that we see here, the God who forgives rebels. Isaiah chapter 1 begins, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Amos saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart is afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness. Only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you. Laid waste is when overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations, I can't bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread your hands out in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient... 
you'll eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What an incredible passage here. What an incredible picture of our God, the God who forgives rebels. I want to look at this passage together this morning, and to do that, I want to highlight three three points from this passage to help us understand this. And the first thing that I notice as we look at this passage this morning is it becomes so obvious as we read this passage, number one, God has a heart for rebels. God has a heart for rebels. I was reading the news this past week, and some of you may have heard on Wednesday morning, a man by the name of Dana Giacchetto was found in his luxury penthouse in New York City, foaming at the mouth. He had passed away from a drug overdose in his sleep the night before. If you're not familiar with the name Dana Giacchetto, you may be familiar with the movie that popularized his story. A few years ago, Leonardo DiCaprio starred in a film called The Wolf of Wall Street. Dana Giacchetto was the wolf of Wall Street. He became infamous for his lavish lifestyle. He had made millions and millions of dollars ripping people off in the stock market. He lived a hedonistic, debauchery-filled lifestyle that he became infamous for in Wall Street and really around the world. Dana Giacchetto, a few years ago in an interview with a celebrity magazine, he said, it's a really sexy feeling thinking today I can do anything I want I can go wherever I want and everything's going to be okay and no one's going to say no. Friends, how misguided. How foolish. Proverbs 14, verses 8 through 9 says, The wise give thought to their ways, but the folly of fools is deception. Fools mock at making amends for sin. And friends, this was the attitude of the Israelites that we see here as we begin our study in the book of Isaiah. The Israelites had forsaken God. Verses two through four says that God, he laments, I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. Oh, you sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on him. The Israelites had forsaken God. They had turned their backs on the will of God and his plans and path for their lives. They had said, oh, we can do whatever we want. We can live any way we want. Everything's gonna be okay because we are God's special chosen people. But Isaiah says they had forsaken the Lord. And what we see here, friends, in Isaiah chapter one and what the wolf of Wall Street discovered this week is there are always consequences for our sin. You cannot rebel against God, the source of life, and expect to find life. You may find shallow imitations for a season, but there is always a reckoning for rebellion. Verses five through nine of Isaiah chapter one, God says that Israel was sick from head to toe. Their sin, their rebellion had left them totally corrupt, totally sick, totally infested with disease. They were sick from head to toe. 
I was speaking out in Seattle recently, and while I was there, I had the surprise of seeing a young lady who actually was a student in my youth group 10, 12 years ago, back when I was a youth pastor. Years ago, she ran away from home and moved out to Seattle where she had become a heroin addict. And she had somehow heard that I was speaking out in Seattle, and she came to see me. And friends, I'll tell you, it was so sad. So sad to see what her rebellious lifestyle had led to. Here was this young lady who was once so full of promise, so beautiful. And like Israel, she was literally sick from head to toe. Her hair was thinning and falling out. She had open sores all over her face that she was trying to cover with makeup. She was shaking because of her heroin addiction. Sick from head to toe. And this is what the nation of Israel was in the eyes of God. Rebellion has consequences, friends. And rebellion against God brings the most serious consequences of all. Now, friends, we don't like to hear about that, do we? We don't like to hear about the reality of consequences and spiritual judgment. Our world certainly doesn't like to hear talk about spiritual judgment, but the reality is what we think or what we want or what we wish for is completely irrelevant. What matters is what is true. And just like there are physical laws with physical consequences, there are also spiritual laws, and those spiritual laws have spiritual consequences. This is the way God created the universe to function. Friends, nobody goes out and rails against gravity. Oh, gravity, you're so narrow. You're so intolerant. You're so judgmental. I can't climb up to the top of this building and jump off and fly. How narrow-minded of you, gravity. We don't rail against the physical consequences that come with the physical laws, but yet all of a sudden we turn to God and God lays out his spiritual laws for our lives. He says this is what leads to life and life to the full, and yet we rail against God. Who are you to tell me how to live my life? Friends, the spiritual laws of the universe are rooted in the very nature and character of God. They are not arbitrary. He did not randomly make them up. They are based in his holy and righteous nature and character. And just like you cannot rebel against the physical laws of the universe and expect to have no consequences, in the same way you cannot rebel against the spiritual laws of God and not expect to have some consequences. You see, God is creator. We are creation. Do you get that? (laughs) Friends, if you don't understand that, your life is going to go really wrong. All right? Let's say that together. God is creator. I am creation. All right? Make that point. Hammer it home for yourself because that is the key to life, friends. If you rebel against the source of life, don't be surprised when your life begins to unravel because it will physically, emotionally, relationally, and certainly spiritually. You cannot disconnect yourself from the source of life and expect to find life. Yesterday, I was driving home from our family's cabin, and I was so frustrated because my my cell phone was, was dying. Like, it was, like, 
depleting right in front of me and I didn't have my charger to plug it into. And friends, just like a cell phone that is disconnected from its charger will deplete and ultimately go black. We cannot live our lives as human beings disconnected from our Heavenly Father who is the source of all life. Now here's something important for us to understand this morning. And the same thing was true for the nation of Israel here in Isaiah. Friends, nobody jumps into rebellion against God overnight. You realize that? Rebellion isn't something that people just say, oh, I'm going to wake up this morning, I'm just going to go out and rebel against God. No, rebellion starts with small choices, with small compromises, and walking consistently into those compromises, thinking everything's going to be okay. Remember the nation of Israel, 700 years before the book of Isaiah, in the time of Joshua, before Joshua passed away, he stood before the nation of Israel and he warned them against the consequences of turning their backs and rebelling against God. And 700 years before this book was written, the nation of Israel said, oh, no way, far be it for us to forsake our God. And Joshua says, no, you don't understand. You're not going to be able to do this. You're not going to live faithfully. You're a sinful people. And again, the nation of Israel said, no, we will never rebel against God. And yet 700 years later, here in Isaiah chapter 1, we see Israel is sick from head to toe because they have rebelled against their creator God. And it didn't happen overnight. It started with choices and small decisions to make compromises in their life. You see, every single day of our lives, friends, God sets before us two paths. He says this is the path that leads to life and life to the full, and this is the path of compromise, the path of choices that go against my will for your life. And every single day of our lives, friends, we have the choice to make. Am I going to walk the path that leads to life or am I going to walk the path that leads to compromise? And the reality is, is Satan, our enemy, he tries to distract us. He makes this path look really good and really enticing. And he says, you know what? Just take a little step this way because it's no big deal. You take a little step this way, you can still remember where you started from. You can always just go right back, right? That's how compromise begins. And so we take a step over here and we think, oh, I'm all good, right? I just, I just, I'm good, see, back at it. I'm gonna go back down the path of life. The problem is, though, is every step you take down the path of compromise makes the next step that much easier. And what happens is, is the further you go, the farther you walk, eventually you can't even remember where you started from anymore. And like my friend, this young lady in Seattle, eventually you're going to find yourself in a place you don't want to be. Sick, like the Israelites from head to toe. But the good news is, is that God has a heart for rebels. In fact, his heart actually breaks when he sees the people he made, the people he loves rebelling against him. In verses 4 through 9, we see God's heart for sinful people. Oh, sinful nation a people loaded with guilt. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart is afflicted. This is like the parent, the loving parent saying to their kid, why do you keep beating your head against that wall? Why do you keep doing that to yourself? You're only hurting yourself, God is saying to the nation of Israel. Forsaking me and my will for your life. You're only doing damage to yourself. Come home. This is God's heart. 
And God, friends, is not content to leave us in our rebellion and brokenness. He's provided a remedy for our rebellion. But before we talk about that, we need to address a common misconception that many people hold in their view of God, in their response to him. This leads me to point number two this morning. Religious rebels are still rebels. You need to hear this one, friends. Do you know that you can be religious and still not be right with God? You can be very religious and still not right with God. Religion is a poor substitute for a right relationship with God. And this was the complaint that God made against Israel here in chapter one. Look at verses 11 through 15 again. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord. Verse 12, when you come and appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of them. When you spread your hands out in prayer, I'm gonna hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. your hands are filled with blood. Friends, what is religion? Religion is about the things that we do as human beings to try and make our lives right with God. Religion is about the external practices, the good works, the good deeds, the good words, our rituals, our sacrifices, our time, our money, our going to church, the helping the old lady across the street. Religion is about all of the things that we do externally to try to make our lives right with God. But the problem with religion and all of our outward acts of righteousness is the Bible says in Isaiah 64, 6 that all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags in the eyes of a holy God. You see, you can't do enough good works because God is perfect. He's holy. He's morally pure. He knows no sin. And so your good works, your acts of righteousness, your good deeds to a holy God, they're nothing. They're meaningless. They're pathetic. God's not interested in all of the outward stuff that you do, even the outward stuff that you do in his name. He wants your heart. He wants a transformed heart. You see, the Israelites were very religious, but their hearts weren't in the right place. There was no integrity in their religion. There was no consistency between their worship and the reality of their daily lives. Their religion had become a matter of going through the motions. It was about manipulating God, not worshiping God. It was nothing more than fire insurance, a get-out-of-hell-free card. And friends, there's a lot of people in our world today that aren't all that different from the Israelites. There's a lot of very religious people in our world whose hearts don't match their actions. There's a lot of religious people this Sunday morning who go to church but then live like hell the rest of the week. There's a lot of religious people in our churches this morning who seek to manipulate God through their service for him but they aren't interested at all in submitting their hearts to him. And friends, if any of this describes your life today, you need to hear this. God is not impressed at all with your religion. It sickens him. And it's not worship. It's idolatry. See, what is idolatry at its core? 
all idolatry is at its core is trying to manipulate God. It's saying, God, if I do this, then you have to do this for me. God, if I give you that or serve you in this way, then you need to give me some goodies too. That's idolatry, friends. That's manipulating God, and that is not worship. That is self-centeredness, and it sickens God. What does God really want? God desires righteousness. Look at verses 16 through 17. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. See, God wants people with clean hearts and lives that are motivated towards others. This is the kind of religion that God accepts. But here's the deal. Can any of us really do this? Can any of us really live this way consistently? Can we remove our evil deeds and do right? Friends, we don't stand a chance. And here's the thing. God knew that when he inspired these words from the prophet Isaiah. He knew we could never do this stuff. None of us can honor God perfectly with, with our lives, which is why we need something more. Something more than just good deeds is necessary to remedy our rebellion. Tuesday night, I'm talking to Rick Fee. Don Button and I are talking to Rick Fee. And I find out that Rick used to be a professional baseball player, played in the minor leagues for the Kansas City Royals. And while we were talking with Rick, I asked Rick, I said, you know, Rick, and I asked him if I could share this this morning. I said, Rick, you know, when you stand before God someday, when you're standing before the pearly gates and, and Jesus comes out and he says, why should I let you into my kingdom? What are you going to say to him? And Rick, he said, well, you know, I, I've been a pretty good guy. I've helped a lot of people. I've done a lot of good things. And, you know, Rick being a baseball player, God kind of impressed this upon my heart. I said to Rick, I said, you know, Rick, see, the thing is, is God is the standard. He's the standard of right and wrong. He's the standard of good and evil, the standard of righteousness, the standard of holiness. And God, he bats a thousand. And I said to Rick, I said, Rick, what would you say you've been batting in your life? 500 maybe? And Rick said, probably not even that. But then I shared with my friend Rick, I said, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ stepped up to bat in our place. And Jesus always bats a thousand. Jesus went up and he took the hit for us so that we could have a right relationship with our creator God. See, something more than good deeds is needed for us to have a relationship with God. And this is where point number three comes into play this morning. Repentance is the remedy for rebels. Repentance is the remedy for rebels. It's the key to a right relationship with God. And all rebels, friends, any one of you here, all of us rebels can find hope in Jesus Christ. Now I want you to remember this. The book of Isaiah was written 700 years before Christ. But even then, God was already revealing the truth of the gospel plan of salvation to his people. 700 years before Jesus. Look at verses 18 and 19. Verse 18a, come now, let us reason together, God says. Friends, God invites rebels into relationship. God doesn't go and beat up the Israelites and beat up these rebellious people. 
He doesn't shame them. He doesn't condemn them. No, he says, come now. Come into a relationship. Let's talk about this. Like a loving father who wants to correct their wayward son or daughter. Come. Let's reason together. Verse 18b, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. God offers hope for renewal, for redemption. Verse 19, he says, if you are willing and obedient. See, here's the key to grace, friends. If you are willing and obedient, this is the key to God's grace. God wants our hearts. It's a humble and repentant heart that God desires. In what is repentance, friends? Repentance is simply a spiritual change of direction that takes place in our inner being. Repentance is saying, Jesus, I'm stepping off the throne of my heart and you are gonna take your rightful place on the throne of my heart. I'm not running the show anymore, Jesus. You're running the show. That's repentance. It's a heart change that takes place in our spirit. And this, friends, is the essence of the gospel that was ultimately and fully revealed in Jesus Christ. But don't miss this because we're gonna see it throughout our study of the book of Isaiah. The gospel was always there in the Old Testament. It was always there. Salvation was always available by faith. Remember Hebrews chapter 11, the the Old Testament heroes of the faith, the Old Testament hall of fame of faith. Verse 39 of Hebrews 11 says that they were all commended for their what? For their faith. It wasn't their good deeds. It wasn't their good works. It wasn't their sacrifices. They're in the hall of fame of faith because they trusted God by faith. It has always been by faith. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. This is the gospel, and it's the key to having a right relationship with God. Jesus' disciples came to him in John 6, 29. They said, Lord, what do we need to do to do the work that God requires? Jesus says, the work that God requires is this, believe in the one whom he has sent. The Pharisee Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, Jesus, what do I need to do to enter into the kingdom of God? Jesus says to Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How do we do that? Jesus goes on in John 3, 16, whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. It's not about your works, Nicodemus. It's not about all the stuff you do for me. It's about you putting your hope and your trust in me. In Acts 16, 31, Paul and Silas are in prison. There's a miraculous earthquake. The gates of the jail fly open. The jailer falls on his face in fear and in repentance. And he says to Paul and Silas, what do I need to do to be saved? And Paul and Silas say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the most incredible promise of all, Rick, John 1, 12, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gives the right to be called children of God. What an incredible privilege. What a promise. God will forgive anyone who turns to him with a repentant heart. But Jason, it can't be that easy. I mean, if you only knew how much I've sinned, Jason, if you only knew how far I've rebelled against God, it can't be that simple. Friends, last week we had my buddy Mickey Walker from Ireland here speaking to us. After, after church, I took Mickey Walker out to Pizza Pub for lunch and, 
it was awesome just hearing some of the incredible stories he's had of sharing the gospel out on the street corners of Ireland with people. He told me a story that took place two weeks ago. A young lady had been listening to him preach for about a half an hour. Later that day, about two hours later, he was walking home, and all of a sudden this young lady comes running down the street, Mickey, 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 chasing after him. She says, ever since I heard you preach this morning, I felt this, this voice inside me telling me I needed to talk to you. I think you came to this street corner today just for me. She went on to explain, she said, Mickey, since I was 15 years old, I've been hearing voices. And these voices, they tell me things about the future. And it usually comes true, Mickey. And she says, but Mickey, here's the deal. When I was 15, I invited these voices into my life. I invited these spirits into my life. And Mickey said, well, how does that make you feel? She says, well, I... I I kind of like it. I feel powerful. But it also scares me because these voices are now telling me to hurt myself. They're telling me to hurt other people. And Mickey said to this young lady, he said, you know what? There's only one spirit I know that can drive out every other spirit. You need to put your hope in Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit will come and fill you. And this girl, she just broke down. She repented right there on the street corner. She invited Jesus into her life. I mean, Mickey says it was like a light bulb that started shining brilliantly in the middle of the street. Her whole countenance changed. Everything, like physically manifested, changed her appearance. She was miraculously saved and transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, here's the deal. If a woman who literally invites demons into her life can be changed, God can change anyone here, I promise you that. The great hope of the gospel, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Paul says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus died on that cross to take away our sin, to provide the key to salvation. And when we put our trust in him, when we put our faith in him, we can be changed. What a great promise. What a great hope. Friends, what is your picture of God this morning? Do you know the God who loves you, who longs for you, the God who is willing to give everything anything for you the God who did give everything for you I hope you know that God I hope you put your trust in that God let's close in a word of prayer Heavenly Father we thank you for the grace that we have in Jesus Christ we thank you Lord for your faithfulness your forgiveness of rebels Lord Every single one of us here this morning have rebelled against you. And yet, just like the nation of Israel, God, you promise us forgiveness. You promise us restoration. And it's only found in you, Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray if there's anybody here this morning who hasn't yet put their hope in you, that they might turn to you, even right here, right now, and admit their sin, admit their need for you as their Savior, that they might just invite you into their life right here this morning. Say, Jesus, I need you. I want that transformation in my life. I want to experience that newness of life that you promise. Make me a child of God. And friends, I promise you, Jesus can change you. He can transform your life. He can turn your heart around. 
And it's a simple matter of just trusting in him. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness. In your name we pray. Amen.